0: Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. It's a beautiful chapter. Beautiful text today. Stunning text. So let's read Luke 9 verse 28. Now about... Eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him and when the voice had spoken Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had Scene. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of God endures forever, thanks be to God. So I like what the 19th century Scottish professor, pastor A.B. Bruce said. He has this book called The Training of the Twelve. It's a famous book. He says about this amazing event, he said, this passage, it's a passage an expositor, a preacher, would rather pass over in reverent silence. And uh, I felt that this week. Luke's assessment of Peter's, you know, befuddled words when he says he didn't know what he was saying. Um, You know, it's really kind that he said that. And so, in Bruce's words, he says this. uh, You know, we all say that, like, what do you say? What do you say before? We all say what Luke said of Peter, so Luke's gonna be kind to me today. Like, who is able to fully speak of that wondrous night scene among the mountains, Bruce says, during which heaven was for a few brief moments let down to earth? and the mortal body of Jesus being transfigured shone with celestial brightness. And the spirits of just men made perfect appeared and held converse with him about his approaching passion, and the voice came from the excellent glory pronouncing him to be God's well-beloved son. Like, who can add anything to that scene? I mean, our attitude is really that of the apostles in verse 36 when they just just stay silent. Makes me want to interpret Psalm 4610 as be still and know that Jesus is God. Tomorrow is Reformation Day, October the 31st, and many of us are looking forward to trick-or-treating, Right? We're going to go around our neighborhoods, all good, have fun. Uh, but something far more significant happened on October the 31st, 1517. And, and it affects you today. Uh, you youth did a wonderful job Wednesday night in their skit, telling the story to us. Thank you all. So on October the 31st, 1517, this, this lowly but very gifted and thoughtful. Like he was introspective, he couldn't let things go. And his name was Martin Luther, Augustinian monk, he lived in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed these 95 theses, like he went home and scratched out 95 propositions, and he nailed them to the castle church in Wittenberg, and that was the public forum. It's the way scholars initiated academic debate. And he was burdened. He was burdened for, you know, a number of the theological practices of the Roman Catholic Church of the day, particularly the selling of indulgences that told the people, if you just pay some money, you get forgiven. And however, when Luther nailed those theses, he, he had no idea that, he couldn't predict in any way that the people would be so hungry for spiritual truth that they'd feverishly translate them from Latin to German and other European languages and circulate them throughout Europe and spark a reformation that spread like wildfire. And the Reformation, above all things, is a revival of true Christianity in which God's spirit moved in a unique way, powerful way, and he's done so in various stages of church history, and in this period of time, he clarified the fundamentals of the gospel, and he called people back to a clear uh, faith-receiving of Jesus' finished work. Christ as revealed in Scripture. And that word we use today, when we call ourselves evangelicals, it began to be used during this period of time. If you're an evangelical, you're a a child of the Reformation. It comes from the Greek word for gospel, euangelion. We're saying we're going back to the simple, clear gospel. And so as we think of the Reformation, one of the best ways, just as a song we just sang, is to think through the Latin phrases... The theological convictions that, that clarified gospel truth that were developed during and after the Reformation, the five solas we call them from the Latin alone or only. So we think of sola scriptura, scripture alone is our authority. We think of sola gracia, grace alone. It's all of grace. Sola fide, faith alone. We receive it as a gift faith, solus Christus, Christ alone, like we've sung today, and soli deo gloria, may it all be for God's glory, alone. And so all five solas are necessary, they all give a framework for the gospel, yet it's Christ alone that binds them together. He is the center, the hub of the wheel, and all the others are spokes leading to Christ. And you and I are Christ-centered people. Scripture speaks of him. He is God's grace embodied. We put our faith in Jesus. God's glory is revealed in and through him. So the gospel is all about who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And so I thought it just wonderful in God's good providence that it was our turn to look at the transfiguration because there is no text in Luke that quite exalts the majesty and glory of Christ alone as this text today. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Now, as we understand and we look through the transfiguration, we gotta remember that it builds on verses 18 through 27 and 18 through 27 is tremendous. And so you remember what we've looked at over a couple of weeks is that Jesus asked the disciples, point blank, they've seen so much, who do you say that I am? Will you distinguish yourselves from the crowd? It's not enough to say good things about me. Do you know who I am? Peter immediately confesses you're the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. What Jesus wants to hear, and then Jesus abruptly redefines what the Christ must do. I've got to go the way of the cross, he says, because your issue is that you've got a sin problem that only I can deal with. And furthermore, if I must go to the cross before I get my crown, if you follow me as my disciple, you will follow my way. And you will go and pick up your cross daily and suffer on my behalf in the world. And then finally, to encourage them, Jesus looks at them and gives them a promise in verse 27. And he says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so in our text, Jesus gives this Initial fulfillment of this promise. Some who are standing there, three, his inner circle, his leadership team, he gives them a preview, an anticipation of the full unveiling of the kingdom of God. A good movie needs a good preview, it's designed to pique your interest in the full thing, the full movie. And this transfiguration, it's linked to those pivotal, redemptive acts. And even the details here are similar. Luke's version of the resurrection and Luke's version of the ascension. And those are gospel fundamental acts. This is a preview. And yet, when we look at it, so if you read it, this one is invested with more external glory Then those two, it's as if God not only gives us a preview to whet our appetite for the full thing, but he reads us the final chapter. He, He gives us a spoiler in the very best way. He says, fix your eyes on the end. I want you to know the end of the story. And if you're gonna walk the way of the cross, If you're going to put your faith in a suffering redeemer, you're going to know, you're going to need to know where it's all going. We see heaven here. So we're going to look at this under two main points. First, the father comforts the heart of his son. And then the father confirms the hearts of his disciples. So the father comforts the heart of his son here. And uh, this is probably the most important emphasis. This is about what the father does for the son. And that's suggested in that Peter, John, and James sleep through most of it. You know? I mean, can you identify? Sometimes we sleep through things we need to hear. And uh, it's also intimated in that, in the similarities with the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, the three also fall asleep. And there's a lot of similarities, and Gethsemane was all about strengthening Jesus. So Jesus has just recommitted himself to the cross, to judgment, to taking hell on our behalf. He just did it, and the Father says, I am gonna comfort the heart of my son because this has got to be so difficult for him. Well, Luke is the only gospel writer to include that Jesus leads the three up the mountain to pray. And, and throughout the gospel, Luke gives unique emphasis on prayer. He's a man who wants the church to pray. And he shows Jesus praying at significant pivotal times like this one. And he says, as Jesus prays, he's transfigured. And keep that little phrase in your minds. Matthew Henry, the old commentator, 18th century said, Jesus puts an honor upon the duty of prayer and to recommend it to us. It is a transfiguring and transforming duty. Have you thought of prayer that way? If our hearts be elevated and enlarged in it, so as in it to behold the glory of the Lord, we shall be changed into the same image from glory to glory. By prayer we fetch in the wisdom, grace, and joy which make the face shine. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we beholding are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's given for us too, not just Christ. So the first thing that... Well, so Jesus has been praying over all this and the father responds with this this event to comfort his heart. He does so in three ways. First, the father responds to Jesus' prayer at this pivotal moment by glorifying his son. And so he raptures Jesus up to heaven or he opens the door from heaven into our world. There is a parallel universe. There's heaven, and then there's our world. And all God has to do is open the door. He causes Jesus to enter in and experience the glory he is destined for after his cross. And this is the very glory he's always enjoyed. John 17, five, glorify me with the glory I always had with you from the beginning. He's reminding him who he is. As Jesus enters heaven, the appearance of his face is altered, it's literally, it becomes other. And I like that description, it reminds us that he's one with us, but he's also other. He's set apart from us. Matthew, the gospel says, his face shone like the sun. Matthew and Mark are the ones that say he was transfigured, literally from the Greek word metamorphomai, which we get metamorphosis. He's changed. He's shown to be who he really is. And his clothing becomes dazzling white. And the verb means to flash like lightning. And so maybe he's given dazzling heavenly garments, but I prefer to think of it this way that His glorified body beams through his clothes, causing them to shine. He's radiant, he's brilliant, he's glowing with glory. And the Father is revealing to him who he really is. He manifests Jesus's inherent glory as God the Son. It's the glory he's always possessed. And we can appreciate this a little more by Noting that there's a major theme here, there's a new Moses or greater Moses theme going on throughout this account. And so you remember at Sinai, Moses' face also shone. Remember when he'd go up the mountain and he'd commune with God, and he'd come down the mountain and his face glowed, and he put a veil over it as it faded. I like what Dr. Chamblin says about that. He says, he says. Moses shone with reflected glory like the moon, but, but Jesus here shines with inherent glory like the sun. They're both glorious, but one possesses the glory and one reflects the glory. We could see that distinction also in that Jesus, the disciples see Jesus' glory in our account, but then they see Moses and Elijah appearing in glory. There's this derivative, his is inherent. We're seeing God the son manifest. And second, the father gives edifying fellowship to the son. So his disciples, as we know, they don't understand. They don't understand the cross. They don't get why. They don't understand the scriptures. They're not realizing the depth of their need and that it would take this and require this. And so they can't give Jesus support. They can't walk with Jesus well. And look what the father does for his beloved son. He knows that in his human nature he needs fellowship. So he opens the door of heaven and he sends out two of the most important Old Testament figures to speak with him. Just the kindness of the father for his son. And and why Moses and Elijah? And we could say a whole lot. That's a wonderful thing to think about. It's lunchtime conversation. I mean, on the one hand, both of them went up Mount Sinai. Both Moses and Elijah went up Horeb or Mount Sinai. Moses, you know, they went up at pivotal times in Israel's history. Moses formed the nation, constituted the nation from Sinai. Elijah reconstituted the nation after a period of rebellion. He goes to Horeb, you know, he runs to Horeb. Moses represents the law. He gives the law. Uh, Elijah represents the prophets. He's that pivotal, wonderworking prophet. Well, Moses is a predecessor of Jesus. Like, he's a Messiah figure. He exercises prophet, priest, king duties, and Jesus is the new and greater Moses. Elijah is a precursor to Jesus. He was such a notable prophet that Malachi said he's got to come before the Christ comes. So one is a predecessor, one's a precursor. There's another reason, and this has to do with the kindness of God, Both Moses and Elijah never got to see the fulfillment of their desires. Moses worked so hard to get the people to the promised land but he he messed up and he didn't get to go in. Elijah worked so hard to bring revival to apostate Israel, Mount Carmel, all that. But it, it didn't happen and he was so depressed and didn't get to see it Now we see the abundant, overwhelming grace of God that he takes these two leaders that didn't get to see the fruit of all their labors and their hearts cry and he lets them experience one, bringing him into the promised land, two, letting him experience revival. They let them support and encourage the one they always anticipated and pointed towards and be a part of his redeeming work in a special way beautiful he lets them do that gives them little temporary bodies and sends them back to let them do that and let me just say it's a model for you too one of those things that we struggle with in this world is we have so many hopes and dreams we plant so many seeds we want things to happen a certain way and they're good desires and sometimes we just wonder whether it matters and Jesus is saying I care about what you do it counts what you do I'm going to take it into account in glory and so Luke alone among the gospel writers tells us what Moses and Elijah talked to Jesus about they speak with him about what his disciples are failing to understand, and that is his departure, which is the word exodus. We get exodus from that, which he will accomplish in Jerusalem. Again, we have this new Moses theme. Jesus is suffering and death at the cross to pay the penalty and to overcome the power of our sin and his resurrection and triumph to conquer hell, death, and sin is described as a greater, the true exodus that all of that in the book of Exodus only faintly pointed towards. That that their redemption from bondage pictures our redemption by the blood of Christ from bondage to sin. They're talking to him about that. The law and the prophets, they're talking to him about that. We always spoke about this and now we get to speak with you about it and imagine how grateful they are. They they know Jesus is on the cusp of entering into judgment and they're looking at Jesus and saying, "Thank you for what you are about to do. That I would not be here if it wasn't for your work." third most importantly the father speaks a blessing about his son so at at his baptism the father spoke a blessing to his son you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased and now at this pivotal moment when he's about to head to jerusalem he speaks about him this is my son my chosen one listen to him and, and, and the voice of the father to and about his son is always one of love and delight. Loves his son. Church planter we prayed for this morning, Mike Weinbrenner, friend of Jeremy and myself. We supported him for a while. He shared a devotional this past week with us and it was on the father's voice over the son at his baptism. And he said, counselors have told him, counselors in our midst, What a son needs to hear from his father is three things. I love you, I'm proud of you, and you're mine. And we see here the father telling his son at this moment, I love you, I'm proud of you, you're mine. And it's gonna be tough, but don't forget that. So what the father Says, uh, when the Father says Jesus is his son, he means, in the first place, he's the messianic king. You are that king. Psalm 2, the Old Testament viewed Israel's king as God's adopted son. The Messiah was the, the son par excellence and he calls him the chosen one which strengthens that messianic sense it comes from Isaiah 42 that says behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights it's that mysterious prophet priest king figure of Isaiah that declares justice that brings salvation that takes us from darkness to light and to accomplish all this must lay his life down and bear our sins that wonderful gospel of Isaiah and God is saying to his son Jesus is the one the father chose and commissioned to accomplish the task of redemption and as Jesus' glory has exceeded Moses and Elijah in the account now the father further distinguishes him from those leaders by declaring him to be the one he He confirms it further by saying, listen to him. Not not just as one amongst three, but him. They spoke of him, and it's a prophecy that comes out of Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses himself said, God's gonna raise up a prophet like me. You have to listen to him. He He exceeds me. And the father says about his son, he's the new Moses, come to speak my will and lead my people, listen to him. And the son's hearing this and getting reconfirmed with all his words he's gonna speak as he heads to Jerusalem. And then the disciples look up and Jesus is alone. It says he's found alone. And God's just saying one more time, it's Christ alone. It's all about him. And, and as great as all this is, this passage goes further than that and it means to go further than that because he's not just the Messiah son, he's the son by nature. In fact, he can only be Messiah because he's God's son by nature because it requires the God man to work the redemption that we need and so all the ways the father glorifies him, sets him apart, distinguishes him, speaks about him, all underscores the fact that he's not just the greatest adopted son. He's God the son by nature come in the flesh to redeem sinners and that's what we need. And so Ligonier did a survey. Jeremy passed it around to various in the church and asked a number. It was 2022, it was this year, State of Theology and it found that 30% of self-described evangelicals, children of the Reformation, say Jesus is a great teacher but he's not God and you're not an evangelical if that's what you believe. we Christ-centered, Jesus is the God-man. It requires God to take sin. So the transfiguration is meant to convince us of this, that he's man and God and had to be so for our redemption to lead us into the true exodus from hell, death, and sin. Well, much more briefly, the father confirms the hearts of his disciples. Not only does he comfort the heart of his son, he confirms the hearts of his disciples. And it's clearly also for the benefit of the disciples. Jesus brings the three up to witness it. And so we think of the three. We think of what they need right now. And Jesus has just redefined his role as Messiah. He's told them about the cross. He says they're gonna follow the cross way. They're gonna daily carry it. They're confused and burdened, and that is hard for us, too. What do we need? Two things, first, they need to see his glory. God gives them a vision of glory. They see Jesus's inherent, luminescent, radiant splendor as God the Son. They see the two most foremost saints of old, pass from heaven to earth in glory. They see God's glory cloud overshadow them which harks back to Sinai, the rumblings and lightning of the Shekinah glory cloud on Sinai then descended into the temple. It's the manifestation of God's presence on earth, his throne room even, as Ezekiel says, his chariot which transports him around. And it looks like maybe His chariot has come to transport Moses and Elijah back to heaven. They get to see God's glory, Christ's glory. I was watching football stadium pregame light shows over the weekend. And as, I mean, amazing as they are today, it has nothing, nothing on this. Matthew and Mark say they fall down on their faces terrified before this. They see heaven. They see glory. And it and it tells us today don't sell yourself short for any lesser glory. And so what little glories are we going after today? What do we have to have? You know, I mean, we want to look good, like young people. You know, you're, you're looking better and better. Everything's working well. You're getting stronger and more beautiful and handsome. You know, we want our people to like us. We want to make a, a big dent in our world. We want to be successful. We want to be noted. All these glories, which are great, good, but don't sell yourself short. He brings heaven to earth to say, this is where you're going. Now is the way of the cross but the crown is a door away, always. And that's what you want. Second, and most emphatically, you need to pay attention to Jesus. I mean, Moses, and, you know, in, in Scripture, you had to have two witnesses for anything, God sends the two best witnesses. They've heard the hardest news, get the two best witnesses. The law and the prophets say this is the way and it's always been the way. Sin's gotta be atoned for and he's come to do it. And then Peter speaks out of his head when he wakes up, master it is good that we are here, so far so good. But then he says, let us make three tents, one for you and for Moses and for Elijah. It's kind of a strange deal he wants, but basically what he's warning is, I like it here. And I wanna stay on this mountaintop and it is incredible and I love being inside your glory it's overwhelming to me but seeing Jesus as he is satisfies everything I've ever wanted I want to stay here in communion with you please let's linger on top of the mountain not rush down the mountain to that weariness and and work and, and suffering that Jesus has been talking about Bruce says farewell earth and cross welcome heaven and crown I want to stay here But the father responds to that. And it's kind of a rebuke, but a a blessed rebuke. He, He covers them with the glory cloud and he speaks out to the disciples. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. What you need is to listen and obey my son. Take heed especially when he tells you that now is the way of suffering, then is the way of glory. Listen to him when he says that you are so beloved that the one who possesses such infinite splendor for joy left it behind to become nobody and to go lower and lower and lower into everything antithetical to God and absorb it into his own immaculate person and pay it in full and undo it at the cross in order that you might enter into this and walk through that door and be glorified together with the Son. Take that to heart and then for the good of the world and your own sanctification, walk the way of the cross in faith in Jesus. It's Christ alone. Might we listen to the sign? Might we see that our need is greater than we ever dared imagine? And the same token, might we see that we're more beloved than we ever dared dream? May God add his blessing. Amen. Let's stand.